This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we come before you once again as we do week by week and ask you to be here with us, be amongst us. We trust that you are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I know what you're thinking. There's something different about Nick this week. And no, I haven't lost a couple of extra pounds. The General So's chicken has proven just too tempting. And no, I haven't started aging in reverse. It turns out that that skin cream was engaging in some false advertising. Uh, No, what's different about me is that since we were last together, I have, at the uh, age of 39, become someone who has a television in his bedroom. I know, right? This was, of course, as it is for many children, a dream of mine for all the years that I lived at home. Oh, to be freed from the shackles of the nature programs my parents wanted to watch. Oh, to be able to sneakily stay awake as late as I wanted into the wee hours watching whatever illicit programming my rabbit ear antenna could receive. But it never happened. Not when I lived at home, Not when I went away to college, not when I lived by myself, not after I was married, not even after I had children, but now it has happened. We got a new TV last week and thought, what are we going to do with this old TV? We looked at each other, a spark of recognition, maybe we could put it in our room. As it turns out, Aya has never had one in her room either, so this whole new world is open to us now. What might we watch? What fun might we have? How late might we stay up? As it turns out, though, other than to make sure it's working, we have literally not turned it on. And weirdly, it seems to be affecting my TV watching in general. I'm even watching the new TV less. I'm actually back to reading more. Who knew, right? The solution to the nation's television addiction is actually more TVs. Own twice as many TVs, watch half as much. All the children here are like, yeah, mom and dad, that's it. But even if you don't believe that theory, the facts on the ground in my house remain. I'm watching less TV and reading more. And one thing that I read this last week fits so nicely into my uh, sermon this morning, into our reading, that I couldn't help but tell you about it. I've been on a Nick Hornby kick. This is an English author. Um, If you haven't heard of him, you should look him up. He wrote High Fidelity and About a Boy, which were turned into wonderful films. He also wrote uh, Fever Pitch, which was turned into a terrible film. Um, But anyway, one of his lesser-known novels, one that I reread this last week, I couldn't get it out of my head as I was interacting with our readings this morning, especially with what God has to say to his people through the prophet Jeremiah, when he says that he will write his law 
on their hearts. So he's going to put his law into his people and that his people will know him, that he will be their God and they will be his people. Now Hornby's novel is called How to Be Good. I mean, who wouldn't read that, right? He should have put it in the self-help section. Instead of the fiction section, it would have sold out in a minute. How to be good is one of life's big questions, and Jeremiah begins to work on answering it with this announcement from God. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. So, with God's law written on our hearts, it seems that we ought to know intuitively what goodness is. But of course, as you know, knowing what goodness is is not really the problem. My kids know what's good. It's getting them to do what's good that's the issue. And of course, you and I are just the same. Knowing what's good is one thing, and doing it is something completely different. So, how to be good. To talk about how to be good, the concept, I want to share with you a little bit from How to Be Good, the novel. The protagonist of the book is a woman named Katie Carr, and she is a good person. At least, that's how she thinks of herself, and she clings to this self-identification tightly, as we all do. I'm a good person. After all, she thinks she's a doctor. She helps people for a living. She holds the right political views. She's raising her children the right way. And perhaps most importantly for her, her husband is an angry jerk. In her marriage, she's the good one. All of this gives her great comfort. She's good. But then her husband meets a mysterious man named, and I'm not making this up, DJ Good News. Let that marinate for a second. DJ Good News. Her husband meets this mysterious man and becomes, instead of an angry jerk, repentant, forgiving, loving. You might even call it a conversion. Wink, wink. He becomes good. So how does Katie feel about this new husband of hers? Is she excited by this converted man she's now living with? Of course not, because she's actually thrown completely off kilter by this renovated man. As it turns out, she's been counting on his badness to show her that she's good. You understand? She's only able to think of herself as good compared to how bad he is. Here's an amazing paragraph from the book that I bet describes each and every one of us here. This is what Katie Carr, protagonist of How to Be Good, says about how to be good. Later, half asleep, I start to dream about all the people in the world who live bad lives. All the drug dealers, arms manufacturers, and corrupt politicians, all the cynical jerks everywhere, getting touched by good news and changing like my husband has changed 
The dream scares me because I need these people. They serve as my compass. Due south, there are saints and nurses and teachers in inner city schools. Due north, there are managing directors of tobacco companies and angry local newspaper columnists. Please don't take my due north away because then I will be adrift, lost in a land where the things I have done and the things I haven't done really mean something. What a sentence. Please don't take my compass away because then I will be adrift, lost in a land where the things I have done and the things I haven't done really mean something. For her, being good means being better than somebody, anybody. She is reasonably terrified of some absolute good, some real good, some good that's not just good by comparison. Because an absolute good makes what she does and what she doesn't do really mean something. She's terrified, in other words, of the law written on her heart, the law of God. She knows, like we all do, that we do things we ought not to do and don't do things we ought to do. She knows, as St. Paul says, that she often can't do the things she wants to do and finds herself compelled to do the things she hates. And all of that's okay, as long as she can say, I'm better than him, at least. But when the standard is some bigger good, some real good, she knows she's in trouble. She knows that she can only, actually, successfully think of herself as good by comparing herself to someone who is worse. We all do this all the time. It's the easiest way to be good, or at least to feel good, to point the finger at someone who is bad. Unfortunately for Katie Carr and for us, God has a more profound good in mind. So remember that God says he's going to write his law, his how to be good, on people's hearts. And they won't even have to say verbally that they know him anymore. They won't have to teach each other. They'll just know God because he will be inscribed inside them. And see, we try to be good. We compare ourselves to worse people to reassure ourselves that we are good because we know, even if it's just subconsciously, that real good is out there. That God exists. After all, his law is written on our hearts. This is why perfectionism exists. In my mind, perfectionism is almost proof enough of the existence of God. We are perfectionists because we know that perfect exists. In this way, everyone knows God. We desire to be perfect because we know that a perfect standard is out there. This is what St. Paul was getting at when he said, Men of Athens, I can see that you're very religious. You're trying so hard to be good. Let me tell you why, and let me tell you who 
that perfect good is. We can't get away from this ultimate good. It's inscribed in our hearts, much as we might like to try. Like Katie Carr, we don't want to live in a world where the things we have done and the things we haven't done really mean something. But we do. We know this. The things we do and the things we don't do really do mean something. In 1 John chapter 1, John writes, That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is perfect. In him there is no darkness at all, and that perfection, arranged into the law, is chiseled into our hearts. And the result of this is that we are constantly and painfully aware of our darkness. Goodness always does this to us. You never feel worse than when you're in the presence of someone who's really good. You never feel more ugly than when you're standing next to a true beauty. You never realize how dirty your house is until you invite someone into it who is really clean. You never feel as profound a sinner as when you find yourself in the presence of Almighty God. You're never more aware of your darkness than when you worship someone in whom there is no darkness at all. So the question of Nick Hornby's novel, and let's be honest, the question of our lives, still stands. How to be good? When we try to find goodness within, we fall short. That's where perfection is inscribed in our hearts. Turns out, upon closer inspection, that we're not that good. The best we can hope for is to be better than someone else in the room. And we always seem to be hanging on to whatever supposed goodness we have by a thread. Anything at all can send us over the edge. Hornby has a hilarious, or it would be hilarious if it wasn't such an accurate description of me, example of this in the novel. After her husband's conversion, Katie is in in uh, the family room at her house, and one of her kids says to her, why don't you play Cluedo with us, Mommy? And then Hornby writes her saying, and I do, until tea time. And after tea, we play Junior Scrabble. We are the ideal nuclear family. We eat together. We play educational games instead of watching television. We smile a lot. I fear that at any moment I may kill somebody. Who can't identify with this? Underneath our best moments, we are a step away from craziness. But there is good news for those struggling to be good. There is good news for those failing to be good. Near the end of the novel, after her life has fallen apart beyond her ability to put it back together, Katie comes to her last resort She goes, you guessed it, to church. She sneaks away. After all, she's far too educated and progressive for church and attends a Sunday service. She's horrified to find when she gets there, though, that her brother, Mark, is in the congregation. She had no idea that he was going to church. 
after the service, she asks him how he's doing. And he says, I've been to church twice in the last fortnight. That about sums it up, right? I'm going to church. How well could I be doing? And Hornby writes, he doesn't mean that this is the sum total of his activity. He means that he's reached the end of his tether. Mark takes drugs, goes to see bands, swears a lot, hates conservatives, has periods of promiscuity. If on meeting him for the first time, you were asked to name one thing he didn't do, you would almost certainly choose church going. How are you? I'm going to church for God's sake. How do you think? This is who church is for. People who have nowhere else to go. So Katie asks him, how did it start? How did you start going to church of all places? And he says, I was driving to see you. I was feeling low, and I thought the kids would cheer me up. And it was Sunday morning, and I don't know. I just saw the church. It was the right time, and I went in. What about you, he says. Why are you here? Why have you come to church? And then Katie Carr, the fictional protagonist of an English novel written in 2001, says some incredible words. Words that we might as well all wear on signs around our necks. Her brother says, why did you go to church? And she says, I wanted to be forgiven. Why did you walk into a church? I wanted to be forgiven. That's what God does here. He forgives sinners. Welcome to St. Francis. Sins forgiven. How to be good? Well, goodness... You see, can't come from the inside of us. It must come from outside. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is goodness given instead of produced. If 1 John gives us the bad news about the God we know from the law written on our hearts, that in him there is no darkness at all, Isaiah 9 has good news for people like Katie Carr. For people like you, for people like me. Isaiah 9 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. For to us, those in the dark, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus, a light in the darkness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Apostle Paul says, a complicated sentence that means something simple. He says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
For our sake he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was perfect, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's law is written on our hearts. It is inescapable. Here's how the gospel works. Jesus, the law keeper, died for us, the law breakers, to reconcile us to God, the lawmaker. Jesus, the law keeper, died for us, the law breakers, to reconcile us to God, the lawmaker. That's good news for those like you and me who are failing to be good. In God, there is no darkness at all. So, Christ took our darkness onto himself so that we could, without fear, bask in God's light. So, how to be good? Be at peace. The question is answered. Christ has been good for you. Amen.